and bask in your word and in each other's uh, fellowship. Lord, we pray that you open up the word to our hearts and open up our hearts to the word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So speaking of Christmas, why do we celebrate Christmas particularly? might seem obvious, but it's actually a fair question, isn't it? I mean, why do so many Christians place so much importance on the birth of Christ rather than, for example, the death and resurrection of Christ? This is a question I had to ask myself several years ago when a, uh, a friend of mine, after attending an, another church for a while, concluded to herself that it was unbiblical to celebrate Christmas. And her reasons were not completely foolish. The apostles, as far as we can tell in scripture, did not celebrate Christ's birthday. The early church doesn't have any sign that they did either particularly. Uh, the, the day started as a, a, a Catholic uh, mass about a thousand years ago, Christ Mass, thus the name. And then uh, eventually the Protestants and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and our whole family of, of scripture first churches um, adopted Christmas as a, as a great celebration, but that didn't really click until about the 1800s. Most of what we know about Christmas really was born fairly recently. Most of the, well, lots of the Christmas traditions that we have, uh, some of us might know, have extra Christian origins, let's say. Mistletoe and, and Christmas trees and wreaths of holly, they were all picked up from... Uh, from expiring pagan cultures and festivals, as if the European Christian church noticed the, uh, the paganism closing down sale on the way home one day and picked up a few good bargains on holiday bits and pieces. Couldn't have happened to a nicer heresy. Some Christians steer away from those things, um, kind of a just-in-case. They're wary of their, their origins. and Just like some Christians will try and steer away from the Santa Claus part of Christmas, and that's fine. Anyone who wants to celebrate this day, the Christmas day, will have to be faithful to the word and they'll have to find their own peace with the arrangement of it one way or another. But my friend, who decided Christmas was unbiblical, would go further than that. She would say that the, the word of God existed for all eternity. Why are we celebrating one particular day of the word's existence? Surely we should be more thankful about Christ's death and resurrection than about his birth, since that's the event that takes away our sins and brings us back to the heart of God. Maybe Christmas is being used as an excuse for fun and to overeat and to get presents. And since the celebration is not ordained in scripture, maybe modern Christmas is, as one commenter put it, a carnal event in which true believers should not take part. Maybe believers should have their affection for Christ spread out very evenly across the year, like exactly enough Vegemite over exactly enough toast, with no wasteful bitter lumps or unhallowed dry crusts. There are plenty of good things that come out of Christmas. We get family engagement, we do get fun, generosity, public spirit. But when we boil it down, do we really have a reason to celebrate this day because of Christ? Is the holiday a collection of nice things which one does not have to believe in Jesus to like? Or is there something genuinely divine 
about Christmas Day? This is a troubling question. It should be troubling to us the first time we ask it. But I think the answer lies in verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I think it's the joy of Christmas that is the divine element of this holiday. We know and love our Savior every day of the year, obviously. But the kind of joy that comes out in Christmas is a gift from God. And his people are right to celebrate his name. The angels of God in this passage, they establish a pattern of celebration that we follow. So let's visit this scene again in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So, shepherds. Who are these shepherds and why does Luke record their story? Short answer, they were nobody and Luke records their story because they were nobody. It's possible to take this a little far. Some people say that the shepherds were ritually unclean, therefore they're a despised class in Hebrew society, and the the angels coming to them shows that even the most despised and and unclean members of the Jewish society were being welcomed to to see the born Savior. But that's a little extreme. Shepherds are never quite shown to be hated people in Scripture. We know that Abel was a shepherd. Abraham and Jacob, Jacob both had their own flocks. Moses spent some time as a shepherd, and David was a shepherd. That's a pretty impressive list of shepherds throughout scripture. What shepherds definitely were, however, was simple people, common people. It was not an exclusive job, it was a commoner's life. If we go to Matthew, we can read about the wise men, the magi, who come to visit Christ and bow down before him with their expensive gifts. Those are powerful men, rich men, and wise men, and they submit to Jesus because he's their king. In a sense, those are elite men bringing their elite gifts to the most elite human to ever exist on the earth. But the shepherds, the shepherds of Bethlehem, are the simplest of commoners with no gifts to speak of. And the angels of God come to them too, announcing a savior and a king for the simple people as well. Verses 9 to 12. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. There's a an instinctive reaction in Scripture to angelic visitations and angelic visions. They tend to show up in a flash of God's glory, and then the prophet or the person they encounter is uh, terrified, or they faint, or they fall to the ground, and I think that's probably a reasonable reaction. Have you ever been, for example, driving along and looked in your rearview mirror and saw that you were being followed just a little too intently by a police car? No sirens or anything, you're not in trouble, as far as you can tell, they're just driving. Probably not paying attention to you, but you may still find that you get really alert really quickly 
and then double check if you are breaking any laws right now. Maybe just go 10 under the limit just in case. I like to think that's a fraction of the sensation one feels when confronted by an angel. Police don't take interest in you and pull you over to congratulate you on how well you are driving. And angels don't really have a lot of occasion to casually talk to people. Scripturally speaking, angels tend to show up to prophets, of which there haven't been any for 400 years by the time this happens, to give them those prophets' messages to give to the Israelites. Or alternatively, they show up to destroy the enemies of God with literally biblical amounts of firepower. In short, they come to kill people and advise prophets, and they are all out of prophets. But this is the most unusual angelic visitation in all of Scripture because there are no prophets. There is no heavenly judgment. There isn't even a command from these angels. The angel doesn't even tell them to do anything. He just tells them the Messiah has been born. He's the one wrapped up in the cloths in the manger. Just thought you should know. We're not given a lot of insight into the psychology of angels and, and how they make their decisions and why they do the things they do. But it really looks like this angel was so overwhelmed by the event that he had to tell someone. Maybe he was commissioned by God to tell these nobody shepherds that the Savior was born. He doesn't say that specifically. Maybe the angel was just watching over the event of the Lord being born into the world and then detected these shepherds nearby and had to tell them. But either way, we find out quickly he's not alone. In verses 13 to 14, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. How many is a great company of the heavenly host? We don't know. 600, as many as a Roman legion, more than that. Some people would say that every angel in heaven would have been present for this because it was the most significant event in creation at the time. We're left with only our imaginations to guess on that one. But they praise God for the thing he's doing and they congratulate man for what he's receiving. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is an amazing thing. The Old Testament has a few grand visions of many angels praising God. They have a, a particular form they tend to take. It usually happens when the prophet is, is swept up in a dream or a vision and they see heaven, they see the throne room of God, and the angels are flying about and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But now, in this scene, God is actually present in Bethlehem as a child. This is not a vision in which a prophet goes to heaven. It's a visitation when the choir of heaven comes to earth. And all because the angel tells us that he brings good news that will bring great joy for all the people. The good news, the gospel. The gospel of great joy. So we understand the first Christmas was an event of tremendous joy, but what do we mean when we say joy? Is joy just extreme happiness? Is it something else? You would be stunned at the amount of ink that Christian writers have spent trying to nail this question down. 
and they come up with some slightly different answers sometimes. Some will say that joy is a particular brand of happiness that is only supplied in relationship with God. So they'd say that it would be impossible for someone who didn't know God to feel that kind of joy. Some will say that joy is a state of mind, whereas happiness is a temporary feeling. It's impossible for us to know precisely which hairs to split as to what this angel meant by joy, but I find C.S. Lewis particularly insightful on the subject. He describes joy as a mysterious, passionate desire. A passion and a desire. And all passions, all passionate emotions have an object. They are directed towards something or someone. You don't just feel love, you love someone. You're not just angry, you are angry at something. You don't just have joy, you are enjoying something. And because these feelings occur when someone is focusing on the object of their feeling, they can't happen when we are thinking about the feeling itself. You can't just love love. Love just sort of happens when you love someone. You can't be angry at anger. You can just be angry at something, and when you reflect on your anger, you calm down. You can't just enjoy joy. In fact, uh, for example, a woman who spends her time contemplating her loving feelings, thinking all about her love, will find herself probably besieged by questions like, have I ever really loved? Will I ever be really loved? Is this what people are talking about when they say love, or am I actually missing out on something? Dwelling on the feeling paralyzes it. Likewise, a man who is unreasonably angry can short-circuit that anger by calming down and thinking about the fact that he is angry. It takes the passion out of it. This is why we tell angry people to calm down, because reflecting on our passions stills our passions. And similarly, a life lived in search of joy, looking to find joy, and how we get joy is doomed to failure. We can enjoy experiences, we can enjoy the company of people we love, we can feel joy in our shared traditions, but when we turn inward with a magnifying glass and start wondering what we are enjoying and how satisfied we are, it goes away. This is why people who are uh, professional critics in their fields tend to be cynical toffs. They grow up enjoying something, say movies, and they become professionally engaged in thinking about how those movies make them feel, and before you know it, they hate everything that people like, and they like everything that people hate. And they're giving Oscars to obscure movies that no one has ever seen, and they're ignoring the, the blockbuster hits that everyone with eyeballs saw and loved. Thus, it is difficult to both seek joy and to feel joy at the same time. In some sense, joy has to sneak up on you. It has to sweep you up and carry you to something higher and then deposit you back on Earth when it's done with you. Or maybe a little too early when you try too hard to grasp it. That's the passion that is joy. But joy is not just a passion, it's also a desire. And anyone who has really felt joy knows this. There's an aching, a bittersweet sense embedded in the feeling of joy. It's a longing for something. It's seeking for something. And the sweetness of joy comes when we fly close to that something. And the bittersweetness comes 
when it goes away and we feel further away from it. We might see uh, a play or, or hear a song or watch a movie or hang out with a new friend or sing a carol and we'll experience joy. And you might like it so much that you want to do it again immediately after. See the play right away again or hear it again or watch it again or meet them again or sing it again. But the joy of the first event is already passing. You can't grab it again. It's already flying away. But what is that thing? What is the thing behind joy that we are chasing? The thing that we sense when a story so perfectly reflects some element of our human experience that we just feel it more. Or when the elements of, of music come together so flawlessly that we catch a glimpse of something. What is the something? When we sing carols and we delight in one another on Christmas and there is something about it that is so special, what is the something? But we can't be shocked to discover that the thing we're looking for is God. If you marvel at a sunset, you're not just enjoying nice colors. In a way, you're longing to know the artist behind it. When your team scores a winning point and you fire out of the chair to celebrate, you don't actually think you're part of the team. You are longing to be part of an ultimate victory. And once a year, when we gather around our Christmas traditions and sing our praises to God for the day his son was born to the world, we are reaching up towards heaven in the joy of our hearts. It is worship to have joy in our lives. And once the joy moves on from us, when we turn our thoughts inwards and then it spirals off and out of us like a spooked cloud of starlings, it is right for us to thank God that it visited us at all. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, he doesn't mean that he came that we would have more abundant things. Obviously, he's about to spend the rest of his ministry talking about how things don't last. Life abundant is life free from the strangling pressures of the world, the worries about tomorrow, the, the fretting about not having enough, from the fear of death and what that might mean. That's life abundant. And Jesus came to give that. He came to do the will of his Father and to save mankind from their sins back into the everlasting security of the loving Father's heart. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. That is what the angels were so overwhelmed by. That is the joy of Christmas. Excuse me. So the Bible does not tell us specifically to celebrate Christmas as an annual event. We celebrate it because our culture has accumulated tradition and affection around the yearly recognition of the birth of Christ. And though he is our savior every day, acknowledging his birth in a special way once a year brings us joy. And feeling joy and lifting it up to God is a desire so bone deep in human experience, so hardwired into the souls of men and women that for God to command in Scripture the specific events that we might be allowed to enjoy would have been a waste of ink. And I pity the poor souls who can't rejoice and feel joy 
without endlessly wrestling over whether or not God has allowed them to have joy. The command has been written on our souls, and that should be enough. Now, this has implications beyond Christmas. Each of us has joy in different things. Some people really don't find any joy in the Christmas celebration. I'm sorry for them. It doesn't make them sinful or unholy particularly. But each of us have our own joys, things in which we delight that fill us with joy above other things. And that same bittersweet yearning for something beyond us. <coughs> it's good for us to have joy and to know that joy is, in a miraculous way, a service to God to have it. Romans 14, 16 through 18 says, Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So what are your joys? Do you thank God for them? Do you share them with others? Do you recognize that's an act of worship to do so? Will you remember through this Christmas season and into the next year that God is the author of joy, the one we're really trying to know behind these things, and that we owe him our thanks and our praise? I tragically miss out on some of the more common Australian joys. I like camping, but nature doesn't click with me quite the same way it does for some others. I don't get a great joy from watching a sunrise and smelling the pine needles as some nature lovers do, and I haven't figured out how to get the smell of smoke out of a jacket after you've been sitting around a fire. I like the idea that sports are going on in places. I like it's on TV in the pubs. But I don't have any kind of attachment to a team. I have no sense of loyalty uh, to sport in the way that so many Aussies do. My two greatest joys are uh, stories, particularly movies, about courage and sacrifice. Oh, thank you so much. And, suspense. And the kind of uplifting swell you get in, in some kinds of music that tends to be played more and more around this kind of, this time of year. This year I was introduced to a song called uh, Yesu Joy of Man's Desiring. Uh, and that's a song that fills me with such joy that all I want to do is share it with people. I've asked Young to cue it up after we finish the service tonight. Maybe you'll enjoy it as well. But we are the children of the God, of the gospel of great joy. Delight in the things that he has made wonderful for us. Shouldn't be something we do just between the serious things about faith. It's the most instinctive act of worship to feel joy. We shouldn't live our lives in search of joy as if it were its own purpose, but we should see it as a godly encourager, as a marker on the road that points towards God. At the very end of C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, his story of conversion, his story of encountering Christ through joy, he writes and sums it up this way. But what in conclusion of joy 
for that, after all, is what the story has mainly been about. To tell you the truth, the subject has nearly lost all interest for me since I became Christian. I cannot indeed complain that the, the visionary gleam has passed away. I believe that the old stab, the old bittersweet, has come to me as often and as sharply since my conversion as at any other time of my life whatsoever. But I know that the experience, considered a state of my own mind, had never had the kind of importance I once gave it. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. And while that other was in doubt, the pointer naturally loomed large in my thoughts. When we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who sees it first cries, look, and the whole party gathers around and stares. But once we have found the road and we are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They'll encourage us and we shall be grateful to the authority for having set them up. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much, not on this road, though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold. The angels rejoiced and the shepherds rejoiced, and so we rejoice. Not for joy's own sake, but because our Savior opened for us a way back to God, and we are those on whom his favor rests. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the joy of life, for the abundant life you give us, for the gospel of your son's coming, for his death and resurrection, that gospel of great joy. Help us to turn our eyes to you this Christmas season. And when this season is past, help us in all the joy you give us to recognize your hand and your generous love behind it. By the leading of your Holy Spirit, let us live in the light of salvation and the joy it is to be saved. And we ask these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.